someone has to have the vision, as I said it before, that's almost infinite, mm. that you can never quite never reach. Quite but that doesn't mean you've got to build that, because yeah. actually it's quite infinite. Yeah. You're going to build something that works tomorrow, yeah. that you can launch tomorrow. Something that you have the tools to launch one, otherwise you're gonna try, you need to try something else. Mm-hmm. You don't want to create the whole thing, because otherwise it's going to take you too long, or you need too many assets, mm-hmm. or you need too many behavioral changes. Mm-hmm. So you're going to start removing all those needs and do something that is incrementally better in the direction you want to go. It's always important to ask yourself why something is difficult, because finding the right person for a job is difficult. I estimate about 40 variables in hiring the right person. Yeah. Most of them are random, and that's why that industry hasn't been truly innovated. Yeah. Completely hasn't. Yeah. We speak to a lot of veteran and recruitment and said 40 years ago, per recruiter used to hire more people per month than they do today. Yeah, I believe that. So it actually is going backwards yeah. because the world has gone more complex. Yeah. Like the, the job types, the skill types. Yeah. These variables are too many. So why is it difficult? The variables too many are very soft. People is the biggest industry in the world. Everybody needs a job, sits incredibly deep in the motivation of people in the hierarchy of needs, almost as deep as safety, because from your job depends mm. your confidence, your who you are, how you provide for your family, what you study, what impact you have on the world. So job is much more. This world of work is completely inefficient, completely. There were a couple of trends we were looking at, but it was completely inefficient. Mm. Lots of people looking for jobs and never getting it, and lots of companies looking for people and never finding yeah, it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Y2 Podcast. Here on the Y2 Podcast, we're all about changing the narrative and rewriting the book about what it takes to be successful for those aspiring to be on and currently traveling the entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial journey. On the podcast, I find and interview everyday successful entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and dive into their stories to discover what it actually takes to get started and be successful on their paths. This podcast is really designed for anyone and everyone who aspires to do more than they're doing now, but perhaps doesn't know where to start, feels overwhelmed with the prospect of change, or has either been told by somebody else or maybe themselves that they just can't do it. This is all about uncovering the real stories behind people like you who have taken those first steps and are well on their way to success in order to help shed light on how you can live that life as well. Now, before I introduce you to today's guests, I want to take just a quick minute and thank the Y2 Podcast official sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online learning. I actually love this product so much, I reached out to these guys and wanted to work with them as I see the power of the system for clients. This online training software is very flexible, and you can use it to automate a whole range of tasks in your business. For example, you can manage all of your employee training, train customers and partners in your products, track licenses and qualifications of your staff, create and sell online courses, capture more leads with free online courses, and so much more. Make sure you jump over to their website, yz.com, that's w-y-z-e-d.com, to check out some videos and even get started with your own free 14-day trial, and of course, let them know I sent you when you head on over. But back to the show, and today's guest is Gigi Gauzy. Now, Gigi is currently founder and managing director of Live Hire. Live Hire is an ASX-traded company who are the technology firm behind the live talent ecosystem. This is where people privately connect with live talent communities of the best employer brands. More importantly, though, Live Hire's purpose is to empower the flow of the world's talent to create a more agile, open, and awesome working world. 
and what an awesome working world they've created. After starting Livefire in 2012 with co-founder Mike Haywood, Livefire has grown to extraordinary levels. Now, just to give you a sense of what that actually means, at the time of recording, they had achieved about $170 million market cap and now work with some of Australia's largest companies like Bupa, Telstra Health, KPMG, Roy Hill, and so many more. However, if we go back just a few years before Live Hire started, we find that Gigi had just completed a degree in mechanical engineering in Italy. Shortly after he received his degree, he made the bold decision to move to Australia. Now, moving to a new country can be tough, but he did it without even actually knowing how to speak English. And even if you listen to just the start of this podcast for that story, it's worth a listen all in itself. But his story is really all about how, having come from nothing and not even being able to speak English, he leveraged his skills and opportunities to tackle one of the biggest problems you and I will probably ever deal with in our life, getting a job. He and his team have boldly taken the $11.2 billion industry of recruitment in Australia head on and have their eyes set to disrupt the broader $400 billion global staffing industry. This is a unique look into the story and mind of a successful tech entrepreneur. Somebody who started actually further back than most of us will, in that he didn't even speak the same language, but has now gone on to create an incredible business in only a relatively few short years. While it may seem like a mystic feat to achieve the levels he has today, his story shed light on the thoughts and decisions and mindset behind what it's actually taken to make Live Hire so successful today. Now, if you like what you've heard so far and you want to hear more stories like Gigi's, please make sure you subscribe to the Y2 podcast wherever you're listening to this, and it'd be awesome if you can leave a review, especially on iTunes. Make sure you follow the Y2 podcast and jump over to the website by checking it out at www.projecty2.com. That's projecty2.com. And a special thanks to Belinda Coombs from Red Lemon Productions for being the Y2 podcast audio engineer. With that being said, let's get to today's chat. Gigi, welcome to the Y2 Podcast. Great to be here. My, I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's chat, as always. As my listeners know, when I'm, when I'm always trying to find somebody on the podcast, what I usually do is take a look at their LinkedIn profile. No, no surprise, and we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. And I really look for that, wait, what moment? And looking at yours, going back to say, okay, hang on a sec. So how does a guy with an engineering degree from Italy within about 10 or so years, all of a sudden turn into running a recruitment SaaS company that's ASX traded and multi-million. And after having a hearing a bit of your story already prior to us starting today, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. There's so many gems in here and uh, getting to know you as well too. You're quite a character too. But, but obviously that being said, we always want to start off with just a really quick story. And we were talking earlier about how you came to Australia because obviously you and I aren't, uh, aren't, mm. aren't from Australia. It's always a good story. And, and yours was a little bit more audacious, I think, than mine. I'd love if you could tell us off. I mean, how did you get to Australia? When I finished university, um, I finished my master's degree in university engineering, um, and I finished um, a research thesis. And at the end of that, uh, all that work, you have a big party. Well, that's our big party. And that night, I must have been particularly excited, and everybody would have asked you, what are you doing? And I remember I said to people, well, I'm going to Australia. And um, I think was the right answer that night. <laughs> of it makes sense in the moment. Yeah. 
what I noticed the day after, everybody asked me, like multiple people, like, Gigi, are you going to Australia for real? Uh, I said, yes. And everybody's reaction was like, that's amazing. How exciting. So I realized that everybody was excited about going to Australia. And so I decided, well, I'm, I'm going to do it first. I'm going I'm to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and within two weeks, I was here. But I didn't have a passport yet. Um, I didn't, and I didn't know where Melbourne was apart from <laughs> the Grand Prix. And um, I didn't get a clearance. I didn't get a visa. I didn't tell my parents. <laughs> so I told everybody I was going for a holiday in Australia, and I booked a ticket for Sydney. And what happened after that? Um, my visa wouldn't come tr- through because they wanted to know if I did my military service or not. And I couldn't speak English. <laughs> and so I remember I had to call this immigration department which is, and read the website, which I totally couldn't read. And yeah. Google Translate wasn't really there. And so I was just calling in the middle of the night things I couldn't totally understand, <laughs> yeah. trying to get them to give me a visa to come. And eventually came through. And so I changed my flight. I had to change the flight from, from Sydney to Melbourne. I came to Melbourne. And that's how I got here. So how did you end up not having been able to speak English? How did you end up speaking to the to the immigration to get them to to get your uh, to get cleared to come here? Do you remember? Yeah, I knew what I wanted to tell them, so I I didn't really understand the questions, but I prepared some answers mm-hmm. that some people helped me write, and so I basically was writing statements, almost like if you go to court. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> pre prepared statements. <laughs> exactly. yeah. I pre prepared statements, but I couldn't understand what they were asking, so. I'm not even sure I was asking or answering the right questions. <laughs> I love that. That's that. I mean, that's incredible. I think having even thinking about myself going to Italy, if I was going to go on the reverse adventure, going trying to prepare statements and trying to read them out in Italian, I just that blows my mind. I but, mean, the, but that is what was happening while you learn the language because I learned to you know going out and having friends and I have fantastic friends here. You, often you go out, especially at night in a club or in a bar or in a pub, you don't actually, you run out of repertoire pretty quickly. Mm. And then you, they ask you a question and you don't know what they're <laughs> actually saying. Yeah. Or they reference things you never heard. Yeah. Or, or people you don't know who they are. And, and so you have to have a, a little bit of a repertoire <laughs> of questions to ask back so you at least you get them to stay in the conversation a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. The whole art of conversation when it's just be it's a whole nother element of not just just a typical banter, but being able to pre plan and pre prepare and know how the conversation's navigating and exactly. make them feel like you're really interested <laughs> about what they're saying, even if you don't understand yeah, it. You just only really head polite you know, smile and head bob and yeah. And probably they thought this guy is very nice. He listens a lot. The reality, I didn't know how to ask questions. I just to say things. <laughs> I love that. No, I really appreciate you telling me that story. And like I said before we started recording, I think having heard that, that is a perfect prelude to the rest of your story mm-hmm. because I think we see that same sort of determination mm-hmm. and the fact you'll just... You're going to figure it out one way or another. But I suppose with that being said, as always, we like to go back into the sort of early part of your story to mm. sort of help guide us through here. Because as I mentioned, you, you have a degree in mechanical engineering, mm. but where you've ended up now is, in a, in a sense, really, really far. So I'd love if you can go back and just quickly take us through. Why mechanical engineering? Where did you sort of see yourself or why did you, why did you go down that path? That's a good question. Um, in fact, I didn't know I would have done mechanical engineering. Once I finished high school, I, I was playing in my mind with doing three things um, 
engineering in general. Um, I really did like aerospace engineer and so on, or architecture or philosophy. And I was very attracted to the philosophy and the logic and those um, very, very complex questions. But then I went to visit the university, I went to speak to some professors, and for whatever reason, the people I met, I decided that engineering was the right thing. Mm -hmm. Most likely was the fact that it was the most challenging, it was the one that was harder to do, the harder to finish, less people would try to do it. And I said, well, you've you got to try that, and if it doesn't work, you're going to do one of the others. Mm -hmm. But um, um, you may as well start at the best place you can. Um, you're going to make the best use of your talents. You don't know what, uh, which one they are yet. Just go and test them. And so that's, uh, that, that's, I think, what took me there, and I really liked it, and I found it difficult too, but I really liked it. Now, you were telling me as well, too, that even though you're doing engineering, you had a bit of a side love as well, too, didn't you? Yes, um, the first year of engineering was um, was very hard. You get thrown in a deep end of um, lots of sciences, whether it's maths or geometry, chemistry, physics. In the first year, you got six exams, and they're all uh, major fundamentals. And they're all different, a different language, and different, different hypotheses, different language. Everything is different. And, um, and I realized after all that study that I was forgetting my humanity, like... Um, I was struggling to have a conversation mm. that wasn't that logical or technical or abstract yeah. with, with even my girlfriend. And so I decided to, um, to I saw an ad for, for a school of theatre. And so I decided to join there to, to improve my, my communication and language skills, mm -hmm. which I wasn't lacking. I thought my degree was really... Tipping the balance yeah. too much. You're too, too, is it left brain? You're too analytical and science-based. You need to kind of balance it out with some right brain in there as well too. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the creativity side and um, the communication side, um, the empathy side, all those things are very important. Mm. Was that something you were consciously, when you did it, you were, I need to develop those skills which you just mentioned? That yeah, absolutely. To, yeah? But I was also conscious of the fact that best way to learn is to teach and yeah. practice. So immediately we did this um, theater school, which was actually a, a very well done school. Lots of other people were doing it full time. So mm -hmm. I, again, I, I took something that was a bit too much to take <laughs> and to do the exams at the same time was kind of hard. Yeah. But um, as soon as the school finished, then we started a theater company. And I was with, with three of us with about 25 actors. We, we started running uh, a theater, so I was the manager there with a teaching schools. I was, hmm. I was teaching. Um, I was teaching stage presidents and acting. Some other people were teaching diction, other people teaching um, directorship, other people teaching singing. And um, that was where you teach and, and get to, to help lots of other people achieve their dreams, which I thought was very interesting to do. Now, from that, you mentioned uh, you did that, then you, you, came to, you came to Melbourne, flew all the way to Melbourne, not really having any English. Can you kind of take us through those first couple months? How does somebody with no, not barely any English, minus whatever you could tell the immigration department, how did you sort of find your feet when you first came to Australia? Yeah, when I said I didn't speak any English, I didn't speak any English on purpose. Because at school I decided to study German because German was getting completely phased out. And so everybody was to study English. Mm -hmm. And 
And I thought, I'm going to study English anyway in my life. I mean, the world is getting global. Everybody needs to have a common language. I'm sure I'm going to learn English. So let me do the other things first. Mm-hmm. But when I came, then I did an Erasmus for six months in Spain. Um, and again, I learned Spanish. And then at the end of university, basically, I had to learn English. So mm-hmm. there was no other option, really. <laughs> you run out of time. For yeah. my future, there was no yeah. other option. Yeah. So I decided to come to Australia and... I arrived here on a weekend. I knew one person in Australia, which is a friend of my brother, a young brother, and he's been fantastic, instrumental to, get, to me to get to know lots of people. But for the first three months, I was kind of half mute, you can assume. <laughs> but I tried to use the skills I had the most, and I love cooking, I love spending time with people, I love to make myself useful. And so with that, I, I got to meet lots of people, I didn't invite them for dinner or I was organizing social events at, um, at the English school where I, where I walked to. The, when I arrived, I just went to pick one in the city. And um, I, rem- I remember speaking to the master. I said, um, uh, I just arrived. I'd like to learn. Uh, I don't speak much, but can you put me in an advanced class? Because <laughs> I learn fast. This guy was from England, and he must have loved it. So he put me in this advanced class. And I could not understand a thing. He just thought, oh, I'm going to show, I'm going to show this uh, Italian guy. Yeah. Who does he think he is? Literally, the only thing I could speak was like, I wish you were here, uh, streets of Philadelphia, <laughs> like uh, basic songs. <laughs> and, and for four weeks, um, I, I got to meet lots of people. So I was here in Spring Street. So I was spending like two or three hours at school and then two or three hours at, at a European cafe where all the teachers would come down mm. for coffees. So I was basically getting private lessons with all these teachers because they wanted to tell a story and to, and to have a chat. And so I was paying them coffees that were getting private lessons. Wow. That was the way, yeah. yeah and then so, after, how long, so by the end of that, you were starting to get a bit of a grasp. What, yeah. was, what was your first job? How does somebody with only a little bit are starting to get to the grasp of it and a mechanical engineering degree, how did you, how did you finally get your foot in the door for a business? My objective was to work in an English-speaking country, mm-hmm. was, uh, and to have fun, and to be young, to meet people. I always felt a, a global citizen. I never felt particularly Italian or European. Or I always felt like a global citizen. And so I wanted... Distance was not a problem. I never saw Australia being far away. But I wanted to work. And so I remember that I um, started working very hard on my CV. Um, and um, I'm asking lots of people to help me, and I asked lots of people to make introduction. I was running this big spreadsheet of all the people I was meeting. <laughs> and Melbourne, is, Australia, for that matter, is a, is a small network. Mm. Like, everybody's within two degrees of distance. Yeah. So you can get kind of to everybody. And so I got lots of these introductions, but everybody was asking me, so you're a mechanical engineer, you can create HVAC systems. And I was like... For any listener, what is HVAC? I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> I had to Google it, but it's hot and water and cooling systems yeah. for, uh, for buildings. And so that was definitely not my interest. <laughs> it's a way too narrow application or yeah. a very broad degree. And so um, I tried to look for other things. And, um, and despite all the meetings I had, the preparation I had, my lack of English, I spoke to recruiters, my lack of English, eventually I didn't get to any jobs. And uh, I did some application. And so one day I took a holiday to actually think about what I would do. I was with some friends in Cairns. And I got a call. I said, I'm an HR manager for um, 
this, uh, this company, who would like to, you to come in for an interview. And then that interview worked out well, it was a manufacturing plant, there was a manager there operation who probably origin, uh, family origin was uh, Armenian, and I think he, he understood mm. uh, potential and was really a person who bet on people. And I remember renegotiating my first salary of about um, yeah thirty four thousand dollars a year, <laughs> and for me it was yeah. fine. Yeah, I I mean happy to probably just to get a job finally and go. I don't think we'll pay for the weekend <laughs> yeah. activities, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it was definitely the right way to start. Yeah. So, do you think when you were sitting down with that HR manager, I mean, what do you think they saw in you? You mentioned that they went this, this guy was able to take a bit of a. Uh, bit of a step into you, but what do you think he saw when he was sitting down with you to, to talk about the role? I think they want to see a person that, that listens, that has enough energy and knowledge, but really is the lack of the draw at the start, really. I think, as it happens with many immigrants, in a way, is they're highly qualified mm. sometimes. And so in their very early jobs, some, some HR manager or, or, or hiring managers, they see that they take a, a pun, but they also have a lot of skills and background. So I think it's, uh, they, they hired someone who was overqualified for the job. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember that the job was actually to install two numeric control machinery to actually replace with these two machines the entire workshop of 22 workers wow. with two. Yeah. And so in three months, we, uh, me and another young guy actually um, created patterns in a computer for all the range of furniture this company was creating. Mm-hmm. It was about 110 models with 10 variations. So you're talking about about 1,000 models mm-hmm. with each one have about 20 or 30 pieces. Wow. And so by doing that, we really, within a few months, we changed completely the the production, the mechanics, the efficiency of the department. And based on that, and that didn't require me to speak very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you just get back down, get the tools, start applying it, and not have to worry about exactly. trying to have high-level conversations. And- exactly. But it was highly related to, to manufacturing and engineering in that case. And, um, um, and I always had the view that engineering would have helped you with digital stuff, um, mm. What the process under which we're going is the process of engineering the word, digitally codifying the word. Today, whether you buy insurance or you decide the material you build your house with, or you go online, or um, uh, you do anything, is some form of IT engineers or other people have been codifying those those pathways. Mm-hmm. And so my goal was to, to learn as much as possible in that. And then, and then what happened after doing that with that department, I think they saw potential in me and they gave me the role of coordinating the R&D department. Again, research, new things. There was about 15 people there. Um, all of them only had that job in their lives. So on average, they had, I think, about 20 years of experience. They didn't want me there. Yeah, here, comes this, me. here comes this guy who barely speaks any English going, all right, let me tell you what to do, essentially. I mean, and I couldn't understand them very well either. <laughs> and that actually can be demotivating for some people. Yeah. Like, you study for seven years, you were coming from a privileged position if you want, you speak another three languages, mm. but now you're working in a team that doesn't understand anything about you, 
and you missing some of the basic for the tool, but you got all the other things. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like this in Australia now. They're going to they were talking about this new immigration law where you need to have a much higher level of English test. Yeah. And I'm thinking, is that a teachable skill, a fast learning skill, compared to being a doctor mm. or co- compared to being a good citizen and other things? And I think they're definitely focusing on the wrong thing. <laughs> it's so easy to learn a language. I mm-hmm. mean. We have kids that speak in two languages just because they've got a nanny of different language mm-hmm. or do parents of different languages. So that's very easy to achieve and actually brings a diversity of thought, diversity of mind, mind, mind frameworks and logic that really adds to a society. Australia is very open in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, in this team, going back to that, there were people even there with different um, nationalities originally. And... Um, and we help with that team to basically, we increase the throughput of the team, but we immediately put in 3D design systems before mm-hmm. everything was done manually and by patterns mm-hmm. and some AutoCAD. We went immediately, we invested a lot of money actually um, to train the whole team. And my view was that we'd done the work better, but we would have also trained the team. So if they wanted to find a, work, a job, mm-hmm. once the job wasn't needed anymore, they had all the skills. They probably were ahead of others. Yeah. And that's always been at the core of what I do, actually helping others if I can or whatever mm. I can. I'm really curious. I want to explore this for a quick second because I have this vision, and maybe this is more of a reflection of me, and I, I could be completely wrong. But you come into it, you have, again, you're this young guy who's trying to communicate with these veteran workers. Mm. And in the course of a couple months, mm. you all of a sudden have to drastically change the way they've done work for the last 20 years kind of thing. I can't imagine that was super friendly in the beginning, shall we say. There was a certain level of openness. Is that... What was... Uh, my boss was happy to throw me in a deep end, and I was happy to do that. Yeah. And I must say, I was going there to work early. I was leaving very late every night, so I would have worked 12 or 13 hours a day. But the team wasn't very open. So I had to to throw in some changes. So the first thing was, um, because I couldn't understand people very well, mm. I didn't want to run all the meetings. So I said, why don't we do the boss in rotation? So each one will be a boss for a week. And so at least they could empathize with my job, mm-hmm. understand the pressures, and, and also understand what other people are saying. <laughs> <laughs> you could finally have somebody else to deal with, you know, trying to understand. And all of a sudden, else. that was a change. Then we were doing furniture manufacturing. The area, this R&D area, was the area of all the thoughts and all the patterns, all the ideas. And so I thought, we need to let go some of the old and let some of the new come in. And so what we did, I helped them. We took a couple of days to clear that old area from clutter and create space. Mm-hmm. And basically throw away a lot of stuff, and in that was very hard, is uh, you know, and uh, and in but that changed the mentality a little bit because forced them to move the workstation, understand how the mm. production works better, and then another thing I did, I say, why don't we take some of the best furniture you ever did and we put it in our in our department so we actually use it. And so yeah. we are the one that look best, and we are the one that feel very proud. Yeah. And if there are some defects, we learn about that too. Yeah. And so. But within a year and a half, from a team of about 15, we were a team of about seven, and we were doing twice the amount of the work because we were oh. doing the same work we were doing before, and on top of that, we were doing lots of customized work because the, the industry was changing, and that was a high-margin work. Mm. And so I think that was super valuable for the company and for the team. 
I'm curious as well, you, through kind of the chat so far already, we can see that you have an eye focused on the future, and mm. I think that'll become even more apparent when we get further on in your story. But where did that sort of forward thinking come from? Was that something that you were just taught in university and you were already looking three steps ahead? So when you're coming to Australia, you were already ingrained in that? Or were there other influences that were really saying, Gigi, you need to be looking to the future and, and, and receptive of that open? Where did that, where did that stem from? It's a big question. I think everybody looks into the future. I think um, uh, I'm not particularly versed compared to others. Um, I think lots of people can do it and can do it better than me. I think you have to have an inquisitive mind and you have to be prepared to learn new things and you have to be prepared to not just do but observe what's actually happening, what are the patterns what are the scenarios, what is um, a, a contrarian point of view in a situation. And in more modern thinking is ask yourself, what would be a game changer? Mm. There's a question that people should ask and that often. If you really want to put yourself in a scenario of predicting the future, I don't think is possible, but I think understanding what's likely to happen and what events, what course of events will steer the future in one direction or another, you need to think of what will be a game changer, what will likely lead us there, and what are the potential scenarios. And I think your brain does the work on its own. doesn't matter if you're having a shower, you're going for a hike, or sometimes doing yoga or meditation or working with somebody. I feel everybody has ideas. You just need to... You know, they say that like the mind is like you know, like it's like a garden. You mm. need to <laughs> you need you need to look after it, and you need to feed it, and you need to treat it. You need to keep it clear of, of weeds, and and I think that continuous curiosity. And that curiosity needs to be along probably the the twenty dimensions of the brain, not just. It's not just logic. Mm -hmm. It is emotional, it's empathy, it's about people's behaviors, it's about um, you know, preferences, it's about just the hard facts, it's about keeping yourself up to date with the things you, you care about. So there's, there's lots of elements, but I think it's curiosity at the core of it. Mm, questioning everything and, and taking the time to also allow yourself to be able to entertain the questions yeah. as well too I think that's yeah. I, I remember you know, my, my first girlfriend in Australia asked me like, well, do you ever stop thinking <laughs> I said I don't think anyone does yeah. <laughs> the, the question is can you structure your thinking in a way that you think is, is logical yeah. uh, eventually and then sparks really come through for Absolutely. lots of people yeah. lots of people I think one thing, Vic, too, that I've, I've really come to love over the last little bit, especially with the podcast, is it's, to me it's a highly creative outlet where mm. it's a blank canvas and I can do whatever I want. Um, I've, I've been meditating yes. for quite a long time, but meditation has given me, especially with this, the ability to, to clear everything and just see what sort of thoughts bubble up and then take those. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting things that I probably couldn't have logically gone A to B to C from. I'm, I'm getting these other mm. sorts of ideas and thoughts and, and mm. part of sort of a meditative practice. Or like you mm. said, even if you're out for a walk or yeah. you're yoga, you're, whatever you find yourself doing where you're sort of on autopilot, being able to still your mind, mm. be present, and just mm. not, not, not think about, but just see what bubbles up. And it's yeah. incredible what little gems come up and where you can go with it. And um, to add to what you're saying, 
from a neuroscience perspective, um, there are mostly two types of chemicals in our brain, and it really leads us from from stress to comfort and from boredom to excitement. And what's very clear is very hard to be creative and excited if you're not gone from states of stress or boredom Mm. into a state of comfort first. And then you can generate and spark ideas. That's why meditation for some people is very important. For uh, For other people, there are other ways to be comfortable. But the challenge is that the, when you have things that are overbearing in your life, mm. in turn, they make you stress. Or if you are too lazy <laughs> to be bored about things around you. Properly bored, not on your phone bored, not watching TV bored, but probably just bored. Actually, actually yeah, bored. Yeah. The Latin used to call it, you know, um, otium, which is a productive way of being calm and being thinking about things and learning things that might be lateral. Mm-hmm. But in your mind, that will join lots of the dots. I was at Stanford doing a course two weeks ago. That's definitely the, the cradle of the, the technology in the world and education. And what was clear is that what was incentivized was calm, lateral thinking, explore your thoughts, everything is possible. So to get people to a state of comfort and excitement with themselves. And that was very clear around campus, the way it was built, the way the loans work. You can tell everybody, it looked like everybody was not doing anything important. Mm. What they were doing, they were really cultivating their mind to levels that usually are not possible in many other places. To bring another example is, when it comes closer to what we do at Live Hire, is people are too stressed with the current job or the worries about the future career or the paycheck, it's very difficult for them to think what is possible, mm. what could I achieve? Because they are not in a state of comfort that lets you lead to a state of excitement and looking forward to things. And that is what one of the things we try to achieve when we help other people in their employment yeah. endeavors. I think it's great too because one thing you alluded to is you, know, you, you are one guy and, and one man being able to still the waters and have these creative thoughts isn't nearly as powerful as a whole team of people. So obviously we'll probably talk a little more but your job is to then how to look after the people around you to be able to help them get to that sort of creative thought, the, the 10 or the 12 and the 15 people mm-hmm. of the diverse thoughts and backgrounds and all that. But I'm curious, with, with, with that being said, what do you do then to... Um, to get to that state of comfort and to bring these ideas out. Are you, do you meditate or what do you do that sort of helps you to get to that state where those ideas come out? I don't do many of those things. <laughs> Fair enough. I do like gardening, but I don't have a lot of time for it. I have some of my best time when I'm disconnected from everything and really happens often when you're flying. Mm-hmm. Like Wi-Fi coming to flights is going to disrupt exactly. Yeah. They're my unique <laughs> times. To be honest... Every morning in the shower is the time when I get most of the ideas mm-hmm. uh, and most of the, the things because, I don't know, it just calms my body and my mind and there's nobody racing around me. And a third one, I'm an extroverted thinker. I need to mm-hmm. think a little bit as I talk. I need to get that empathy from others. I need to understand what they are thinking. I want to know what excites them, the, the moments they really get a spark in their eye, and then I know I'm onto something, and if then I can repeat it with many other people. Um, I know that there's something there. Mm. And once you know this, it's a bit like going to Australia story. That's why I learned 
that everybody has that the secret dream mm -hmm. somehow. And it's amazing. It's not because immigration or because we are cool in Australia. It's just always been a dream for everybody. It's the distance and so on. So, but you can only tell that when you look into people's eyes. You, you, you can't discover everything just sitting in the shower or <laughs> standing in the shower or just reading a book or yeah. so on. But you've got to cultivate your mind as well. I love that. So eventually your time went back to this, uh, to your manufacturing, to that role ended. You went into consulting a little bit after that, didn't you? That's what I wanted to do when I came out of university. And consulting is one of those industries that has got a bit of mystique around it. <laughs> it does have a certain, yeah, ooh, you're consultant. Yeah. <laughs> and um, lots of young people want to get into it and... I remember there was a company called uh, the Boston Consulting Group, one of the best strategy consulting companies in the world. They had 8,000 people, I think, for 16 roles in a year, applicants. Wow. That gives you an idea of um, how hard um, it is to get jobs with these companies. And then I'm thinking, how do they make that selection? Mm. <laughs> Is it... Is it random? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, darts at a board or something. <laughs> Is it random in the end? That's one good data point. Like, how do you how do you make a selection decision when you are a company to hire the right people? That's something that's been uh, in my mind. Mm. Because and why? Because I want to I want to deconstruct that so I could help people getting jobs. Mm -hmm. That was I had lots of people wanted to get a job. So and for myself, I wanted to get those jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to deconstruct how they make the decision. So I can navigate through the paths mm -hmm. in the right way. I can structure the CV with the right information in the right way. I can use fonts to highlight things before people actually read them. The brain reads words before you actually consciously understand them. So what you highlight, how you write things, how you use fonts, really for it's just an example to say how, uh, how people perceive you when you're on paper. Mm -hmm. Equally, if you're in person, First impression really do count. And so how do you use this first impression? Um, and I personally don't use them very well. I don't shave every day. I don't put a tie on every day. But, um, but they do count as well. So mm -hmm. you need to present in a certain way. So, um, yeah, I, th I think, um, yeah, I was thinking about those things all the time. Sorry, I got, I got a bit off, off the track. No, no, there. that's okay. Just... Because the one thing, too, I love about this, and I think my, my strength, in terms of what I've cultivated and mm -hmm. what I love doing these podcasts is, is finding the threads that are seemingly random but aren't. Yeah. And I think with you, the thing I've loved is as I'm learning your story, you get an engineering background. And like you mentioned before, it's really thoughts and processes mm -hmm. and logic and, 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 and looking at from A to B to C to D to E and F, whether it be designing furniture, mm -hmm. HVAC systems, mm -hmm. or anything, getting a job. It's, yeah. it's a getting process, a right? And trying to, I love that you have that process of being able to take something and break it down. And to me, it doesn't surprise yes. me why you were probably very good at language because mm. language is a process. It's a set mm. of rules. You conjugate it like this. Mm. You put the sentence structure like that. Um, so yeah. probably, I would imagine without going into it, you've, you've been able to sort of look at things, break it down, figure it, look at the different parts, figure out what you need to do, and then reassemble that to achieve, you know, to, to get what you want to do out of or need to achieve. See patterns. Um, now that I think back at university, I was studying, 
in a way that was a little bit different from others. I was studying things in a very um, condensed period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hating their halfway exams, so I wasn't. I didn't like those. I was taking the final one yeah. because you can get very deep into something. I was studying only theory, but not the exercises because I thought if I know all the theory, the exercises just come out of that. Mm-hmm. Lots of other people were studying exercises to practice the exams, and I was thinking, well, I don't know what I'm going to get given to the exam, so I rather started another book of theory. So I started physics one book mm-hmm. that the professor gives you, and then I started another one that didn't give you just to make sure I got the same story from another angle. Right, right. And then at the exams, I would apply that theory. And I remember that this is one thing i always done. Every exercise in an exam, if I started, I finish it, and I finish correctly. But there will be lots of exercises that I don't know how to do, and I wouldn't start it, I wouldn't finish it, of course, we wouldn't start <laughs> it. But the one I did, I made sure that I never made a mistake. There's plenty of people that know enough, but they make mistakes along the way, mm. so they end up not passing the exam while having known all the exercises. Or, or if an exercise was new, yeah. they would not know how to do it when you have the theory. So uh, I was thinking, based on what you're saying, I, t- I, trying to, I was trying to understand the theories and the patterns and the logic and the, and the probability of what's going to happen in order to then position myself um, in, in the right in the right areas. I see, for example, technology, developing technology in, in, in the current moment is a bit like navigating without really a, a, a map, a yeah. destination. You've got your compass, you've got your knowledge, you've got your teams, you've got the technology, you've got your boat and things, but where you're going is the real question. Mm. And how you get there, you're going to keep tacking and changing. And this is an example with my team trying to explain that direction when the direction is not 100% yeah, clear. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what you want to achieve, but you don't know how to get yeah. there. So I had to bring to the team analogies, like imagine you're sailing, and every time you're tacking, the team asks you, why are we going there now? Mm-hmm. I said, well, because we're actually going straight, but in order to go straight, you're going to go that direction, that direction, <laughs> then the wind changes, the current changes, the yeah. competition changes, and I'll, you have to tack all the time. It doesn't change your objective, yeah. or maybe it does sometimes, but at least you need to predict all those things so you take a better... It's a bit of a definition of a strategy course. <laughs> yeah. You need, so that's... Um, you asked me why I went into consulting because the consulting was allowing me to, to apply enough theory and knowledge to multiple scenarios of, of companies. And I didn't go into strategy consulting. I went to work for an ex- excellent um, Australian company with a fantastic uh, CEO, um, which is now a global company in consulting, they were really about implementation, strategy implementation. Mm. And that, that means people they need to get results done, not just good ideas. Yeah. And that was really, we did that for eight years. And if I remember correctly, you were primarily working in, was it mining, uh, mining gas? Lots, lots of heavy industries, yeah. but also um, the electricity um, industry. Um, I had a small stint at Fairfax. Uh, uh, I had about, you know, there were mostly six to 12 months programs, so mm-hmm. very long and full-time. Um, and that company was fantastic. It was a company was about 200 consultants when I left it globally, all very senior, not many junior ones. And they didn't have an office. So you wow. meet your colleagues, take a flight, go and meet in Olympic Dam, one of the largest mines in Australia, in the middle of South Australia, yeah. and you meet your team on day one. 
<laughs> and all fantastic, yeah. all, all accustomed to that. Yeah. And, um, and I said, why don't you have an office? Yeah, because, you know, people need to be working mm. with the clients. Yeah. What are they going to do in a head office? Yeah. So it was, was a virtual company from day one and, um, and a fantastic one uh, at that. So got me to understand that you can do things differently and you can do them even better than the status quo. Absolutely. Now, was it about, I think, later in the consulting when you actually started to put some patterns together yeah. and which would eventually become live hire? So just going back, what was sort of that early early thought around uh, uh, around workers um, yeah. and looking at some, starting to sort of see some patterns and some opportunities there? Yeah, working with very big companies became very apparent that at the end of the day, what is a company? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is... Is a summation of the people, and you can say the IP and the assets, and the, but it's a sum of the people that they believe in that company and make it work and they drive it and so on. And when companies go well or when they adapt well is when they got amazing mm. people that really believe in what they're doing. And when you really struggle, often comes down to people. Even an example, I was working in this big mine in the center of Australia, really producing, the year was there, like a, a billion revenue, but they had four excavators of 900 plus tons. Hmm. You can buy those excavators. Hmm. It's, it's just a bunch <laughs> of bolts yeah. and... But what happens if you don't have the people around them or yeah. the people that understand where they need to go? Or how, so, so the whole people element w- was critical. And so I decided that the people element was um, the most important in... Uh, so to, function, to, to make it function well in every company. And I also was thinking in HR and recruitment was not considered um, the core strategies or core assets of the company. And that was wrong for me. Uh, now things are changing, actually. And if you read the annual report on any major technology company in the world, mm-hmm. it's only about people. Yeah. People are the change you can create to the world. And so well, I wanted to focus on people and I wanted to focus on technology, those two trends. Mm. So where did the, so you, so you started to see some of these, the, the directions. So where did the, where did the first inkling of, of Live Hire come about? Where did you sort of get that idea that you went, okay, I've been on this sort mm. of consulting path, working with these, working with these, mm. you know, consulting firms and, and industry and, and whatnot. So where did that first kind of inkling go where you went, hmm, there's something here, I need to do something about this? Mm. It's a little bit like that, story before about not being able to find a job for a long time <laughs> and then finding a random one. Yeah. But it wasn't that random. But, you know, Mike Haywood was a, was a friend at that point based in WA, another engineer with a PhD that had started already two companies. Together, I think we had um, an affinity and I think there were lots of ideas, a very buzzing time. There was 2010, 2011 in Australia. I, um, him and I wanted to start a company together, but we were not changing for, unless it was something really great. Yeah. And so we actually said, you got, you're great at starting companies. I'm great at prioritizing. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we put our brains together and, we see, and, and executing? Um, and so why don't we put our brains together and we see what comes out? And we looked at about 50 great ideas. But none of them, he was very ruthless, actually, in his prioritization. Hmm. And, and basically, we said no to each one of them. And some of these ideas are, glo- are, ideas are now very successful products, but um, none of them was our one. And then and we kind of stopped. Hmm. But we had 
frameworks, we had models, we had analysis, we did this and that, and chats and research, none of those flew. And then one day, um, I was walking, literally walking through a door in my house, and I said, wow, like, people is the biggest industry in the world. Everybody needs a job, sits incredibly deep in the motivation of people in the hierarchy of needs, um, almost as deep as safety, because from your job depends mm. your confidence, your, who you are, how you provide for your family, what you study, what impact you have on the world. So job is much more. And that made me reflect also, the Italian constitution, for example, Italy is a republic based on labor, and labor meaning the universal right of everybody to have meaningful employment. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, at the core sometimes also being human, uh, being useful and do, and do correct things. And so I said, Mike, there is a solution. Everybody thinks there isn't. Um, like, and what is the solution? This, this word of work is completely inefficient, Completely. There were a couple of trends we were looking at, but it was completely inefficient. Mm. Lots of people looking for jobs and never getting it, and lots of companies looking for people and never finding yeah. it. And both are complaining on each side that there's not enough of one or the other kind of thing, but there's asymmetry of information. Completely asymmetry of information. And then I thought about it, and I thought, like, you know what happens when you, you apply for a job through a job board, and that job is there for two or three days when everybody applies and that gets T-ranked. And then six months after, the one person out of 100 who applied updates his profile on LinkedIn. I said, what happened in yeah. those six months? Who has the information? What are the life stories those hundred people went through it? Mm-hmm. And why did that one get it? Uh, how can I help the hundred ones actually mm-hmm. get a job? So I said, well, the solution to this is create a much more transparent and open. Um, back then, the idea was to basically create a, a market, marketplace which would be transparent and efficient and fair, which means everybody has the chance to be found. Mm-hmm. But that when they find you, they have to, the employer needs to have all your details. But if this public, nobody will put all their details in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so when I started this company, I spoke to our first investor. I said, I believe LinkedIn is a great company. will go very fast or so buy their shares. However, ultimately, <laughs> I don't think the open model will work. Yeah. You need to create a closed network, not an open network. Because the more we open it, the, the least people will put information like how much you earn, are you yeah. unemployed, you know, which color are you, what is your name, all those things that eventually create some form of discrimination or create, you're not going to get hired usually if you, are, if you are looking for work. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things. And so we decided to create a, a hidden marketplace where people were anonymous. And we launched that within six months. We, we were already live. And then when we were live, um, Lots of people do jump on board and say, yeah, these empowers me. So companies can find my skills and I can talk to them privately. And this really resonated with lots of people because Mm. it was completely different. Now, as well, too, you were talking earlier about you were still doing your consulting gig in New Zealand at the time. And you were basically full-time consulting Mm. and Mm. full-time developing the business as well too so how how was that how was that that must have been absolutely exhausting to do 14 days consulting back in australia five six days Mm. of the business and back and forth how did how did you go through those first couple those six months 
To tell you the truth, wasn't wasn't difficult. Yeah. It was um, it was very exciting. Creating things is very exciting. I, I was looking back at some of the early emails. <laughs> this day with emails, uh, you can on Gmail, you can go back to the back uh, to the beginning. Yeah. Back to the beginning yeah. and read the very first conversation you ever had with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to remember it. And the level of excitement, thinking, lateral thinking, creativity was was wild and was big. So I was doing nine, I was on a roster running a team in New Zealand uh, of about five people for a year. Um, and I was there for nine days a week, uh, every fortnight, sorry. Mm-hmm. And then for the five days I was home, I would to, uh, just uh, build the company. Hmm. And that, that was not too difficult for, for me. Uh, because at that time you're thinking you don't need to be in the face to face with everybody. Yeah. And uh, yes, you do lots of lots of work, lots of preparation. But sometimes you need to find a company that's going to build your pro- software, uh, contracts, and legal, and so on. In fact, I think what people underestimate is it took six months of or eight months of full time work just to get the company from the initial thought, which is not very different from where it is today to just when we incorporated a company. Hmm. And then, then we appointed a company to actually build what we wanted for about five months. And that was very busy work as mm-hmm. well. And then from when we went live, I, I left the consulting work. I dedicated myself and my business partner. We dedicated ourselves full time. Mm-hmm. So my advice to people is you can do two things at once. You literally can. Yeah. And in fact, de-risks you in doing it Going back to what I was saying before, the state of comfort, if I had not had that money for my income, mm-hmm. I would have been struggling much more because in all those nine months or 12 months of work before you even live, could you lose faith along the way? Probably yes. But what is the down? If I didn't have any other income, what is the downside? What is the risk? Well, your bank balance starts going down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have money to invest. Instead, I was earning very well, so I could put money from one bucket to the other. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a problem. So you've got to maintain your flow, what's important to you. You don't need to give it up. And actually, it does force you to be more effective, mm-hmm. in fact. But it does come a time that, that you t- need to take the plunge and say, actually, my time is now better spent on this. Do you remember that moment where you went, was it right when you went live and that it was successful that you went? Or was there a moment you went, okay, I just need to put myself into this full time. I just need to dedicate everything. Yeah, the first time we took money on from shareholders, yeah. um, we, we raised half a million dollars just on the back of the idea that we're about to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's incredible. That's an incredible effort for given the fact that you're not even full time running the business. <laughs> you're still trying to have field calls in New Zealand. And, yeah. Unbelievable. But, but if they want to make these a reality, yeah. it's not about me. Yeah. Do they, if they want to invest money because they want it to exist as much as I do and they believe it can create something unique. Mm. And so if they didn't believe, it's okay. But they, do, they did believe and they did believe in the person. So as soon as you start getting that money, we decided to spend it on the business, not in ourselves. Yes. So um, I don't even know if we had a salary, probably not. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you as well, too. I always find this infinitely curious. When everybody I sit down with is, what made you think that as a mechanical engineer running teams in New Zealand all around the world, all of a sudden you can go from, from running teams and focusing on mm. the consulting aspect to speaking with investors? 
How did you? How did you? How did, how did you make that transition? I mean, raising half a million dollars. Well, I've never done it. From what I know, it's no easy feat. So, how did you? How did you manage learning that skill and having the confidence to be able to sit in front of somebody and say, "Here's my idea," and pitch it to the fact they gave you money and a significant amount of money? How did you do that? There's no one recipe, and some people are much better than others. I think it's an acquired skill, and depending. There's no shortcut to it in a way. Like you have to have to give what what give you confidence. Mm-hmm. So what gave me confidence back then was I had the right idea, I had the right partner, I had the right company who would build it. We spent six to twelve months actually creating. No, actually about uh, eight months by the, when we start looking for capital. Um, what the idea was dearest because we know who would have built it. All the research was done. Uh, to the point it was needed, um, we. I knew I had a job. <laughs> <laughs> worst comes to worst, yeah. And I was starting winding down on that job. Oh, the reason I was doing it because I wanted to know that if this didn't work, I could go back there. So I wanted to be very respectful. Of what I was mm. leaving behind. So all that gave me comfort. So when I w- was going to a meeting, um, and my partner was very good at creating presentations mm. as well. So I and I was good, very good at getting. The thoughts into those presentations. <laughs> so, well, I had we had countless meetings where the people didn't want to invest. But my view was like the objective of the meeting is not just to get investment; it's getting a person that's going to keep you on their radar. Mm. And uh, because they don't invest now, they're going to invest next time. Mm. If they invest next time, they're going to be in the next time. And so, it's not a problem. I'm actually investing my time. And being told no, that's not the problem. What's the? There's actually good feedback. <laughs> mm. What's? But because the business was de-risked, I think my view was that everybody has twenty-five thousand dollars. Really, mm-hmm. if you just look at around you, lots of people have twenty-five dollars. They just choose to put them in houses rather than businesses. Yeah. So. Getting half a million dollars, you only need twenty people. You know, mm-hmm. um, you don't need that many people. You know, one thing too that you said that I, that I really love is is this idea that you you had confidence in yourself, but it wasn't just this necessarily this brazen I'm, I can do it kind of thing. No. It, it was this sort of systematic breakdown of okay, mm. what can go wrong? What mm. are the worst case scenarios? And then dealing with that, I, I I hear this from people all the time, and they go, oh well, what if and what if and what if? And, and you're like, well, that shouldn't stop you from doing mm. it. That should be the start of dealing with mitigating the risk, kind of thing. And if you can't mitigate the risk, then mm. you know maybe there isn't something there. Maybe yeah, maybe maybe you maybe you can't walk away from your job, kind of thing, right? Maybe it's not the time yet. But I don't think that people really can break that down, like you said, break it down into its components, address them individually. So when you do get to that point of sitting from an investor, you don't have everything on the line because you've mm-hmm. just thrown it all in. You've broken it down and you've created a, a really a win-win situation for yourself. Either you get money or you get feedback. Yes. And you just keep going. And some people get to that point of um, confidence and, um, and knowledge sometimes by having started many times before. Yeah. The classic yeah. entrepreneur is yeah. a person who failed many times. Um, so there's many ways to get that knowledge uh, or that, uh, that confidence. But you can't expect it to be um, easy. Mm. Because imagine you are on the other side. How many people come to you for $50,000 and say, <laughs> yeah, no worries. It'll be great. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On, a, on a pitch. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
not many at all. Like, um, in a way, you need to put in, in terms of effort and knowledge and experience, much more than I give you. Mm. But there are smart people out there. They back, they, at the end of the day, they back the person. Mm. If they understand the space a little bit and they understand the potential and you have good answer to inspire them, that's needed. But in the end, they back the person and the team. If they believe they're investing in you, um, they like the journey they're going to be on. I actually think that every single person invested in us, they were 100% thinking they would have lost their money. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Now, as of today, they made, you know, 33 times their money, hmm. something like that. So they're, so they're pretty investors. happy then, probably, that they took a, took a chance on you. Yeah, I think, but you see, most people don't get um, the risk scenario. So sometimes when I said I said to people the risk is, you know, let's say when we're a hundred million dollar company, we said, well, look, I think we have a fifty fifty chance to be a billion dollar company or zero. Mm. And when I said it the first time to somebody, they look at me horrified. <laughs> and and I said to them like, what do you mean you're horrified? I, I said you, you're telling me that that you could be completely dead. Mm. I said, well, start with everybody, every company can be completely dead. Yeah, but. Well, I'm telling you, you got 50-50 chance to be 10 times bigger or nothing. Like, he's almost going to a roulette table and say, you got 10 blacks, yeah. 10, 10 black keys in the roulette and one, and one for, for every one red. Yeah. You're going to put your money on black, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when you tell an investor, they think, oh, my God, they'd rather not put the money in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's exactly probability. So they, have to, they, they thought they were going to lose it all. Sure. <laughs> I'm curious about this too, and maybe there's nothing here, but you have, a, you, have an, you have an incredible expressive way about yourself, and I would imagine if you're sitting across from investors, they were probably getting a sense of that as well too. And I can't help but think back to when you did theater in university. Mm. Are there elements of when you were doing theater that you pull from when you're pitching an investor? Not when pitching. And no. in fact, I have a belief that you forget most people who think you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, your new environment changes you mm. a lot. However, yeah, you do carry things. I carry two things probably with me. Um, one thing th in good theater actors do, um, I, never was I, was, I never wanted to be famous. Mm. So I didn't have to be in theater to be famous. But the art of learning is about people's emotions and people's behaviors, it is, is a very specific theater where you need to put yourself in a different character. So it is a scientific approach. If you think about great actors like Jeffrey Rush or, or, or many, they work incredibly hard to understand how would this person behave, what is this person thinking before saying that thing mm. or before making the face expression, or if I get pinched, how would that person react? Well, that depends on who you are, what you do. So in understanding people, mm. that is a fundamental art of a good actor. Look, there's great actors that came out of the Big Brother, but they, the only thing they do is themselves. Yeah, yeah. The true great actors, they learn. They go to the other studios, they work on themselves. That's one skill. The other, the other skill you take with yourself is, is always be, have 10% of yourself that is observing the situation. People think about too much about what they're going to say, who they are. What they, they think the word exists only within them. Mm. Imagine always you were looking at the situation from above 
I said, what is actually happening mm -hmm. right now? Because that allows you, I believe, technology today is about empowering people to do what they want to do in a well-designed experience and, you know, and creating journeys to get the, the, the right outcome or mm -hmm. some outcomes. So that requires really the skill of understanding people's emotion through those processes and really watching from outside what is the, what is the patterns I'm seeing and what are the different things I need to create. Mm. The engineering of it, you can engineer anything. Mm -hmm. We can build anything. The question is, what for whom? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and to achieve what, of course, but you know, what and for whom. And so I think those are two traits of actors that I really like. I don't care about the fame, I don't care about the, the, the glitter. It's just the is, is, is a very in-depth look on hum, humans and humanity. Mm. I think it's interesting because as you said that with the theme of, of that engineering, you think about, uh, I've, done, I've done a bit of acting, but um, full disclaimer, back, in, back when I was in high school. And, uh, <laughs> but what I love about it is you, if, you're, if you're doing a play or you're doing a part, you, you do have to try, to, in a sense, to reverse engineer the emotions of it. Because mm. you're not in that moment conflicted by anger or grief mm. or overwhelming excitement. You have to almost become very cerebral about the emotion, which is an amazing contradiction in itself. So you begin to, yeah, to, begin to really break that down and have a, a bit of a deeper insight into, into the human emotion. And, and then you need to practice and yeah. practice until those triggers and emotions and reactions become almost automatic. Mm -hmm. And then when you're on stage, that's the key of live theater, yeah. is you need to create that in a live way mm -hmm. so that the, the life comes out of it really and people can find empathy. It doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you, the training element, you need to find motivation and, and break it down. But then you need to practice. So because they become emotions are learned behaviors. Yeah. They are kind of um, automatic. And people say you need to do something 21 times before it becomes automatic. Mm -hmm. So if you drive home today, are you, are you do for 21 days, you take a different way, a different turn. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't do it for about 21 times, next time when you're not thinking on the phone, you're going to go straight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that continuous practice and continuously thinking there's other ways and getting your brain to really become ambidextrous on, can I always only drive on the right-hand side of the road or can I also drive on the left-hand side? Mm -hmm. And when you can do both, you don't need to think of what you're doing. You're just doing do the it. right places. Yeah. And you've got to be careful that, that you don't do it wrong. But, <laughs> but the point is, that ambidexterity, like having multiple languages or having you know, multiple industries or having multiple... Um, you know, um, multiple practice in how you look at things, it is, um, is what allows you, I believe in the world of, especially of innovation and um, uh, in the world of innovation, really allows you to, to create new things, spot new patterns. Um, however, I learned, I made lots of mistakes with my team along the way. Well, I I'd love if you could take us through a little bit of those. I mean, I mean, we a bit of a spoiler alert to anybody who's listening. As you've just alluded to, Love Hire is doing really well. But what were some of the mistakes and the, um, I don't want to say failure, but what were some of the mistakes and challenges you had very early on 
Um, and I love, you know, how did you manage those, I guess, as well, too? Because we, we talk a lot about how you can get started on something, but those next couple elements, once you start, I think are even more critical because sometimes you might start with slightly shaky confidence or you're trying mm. to predict the tea leaves, so you might be a bit yeah. more of a, you're still really trying to solidify the confidence. So, I mean, can you just take us through some of those early challenges, I guess, when mm. Livefire started? Challenges and mistakes are um, different things. So Touché, yeah. challenges are things that you don't know how to resolve. So, for example, a key challenge is do you show you have lots of confidence about a solution that you don't know is going to work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, it is a, almost a dichotomy yeah. rather than a challenge. It's like, well, the answer is yes. You should 100% show a lot of confidence in what you th- do and you believe is going to work. But you're going to receive 10% of judgment really, really at the back of your head. <laughs> <laughs> so no one can see it. Yeah. Or can you spot a different pattern? Because most likely it's not going to work the way you think. Mm-hmm. And so when they talk about companies really pivoting many times, and we have done that many times, is because you do go in with confidence. And then you never raise money to actually say we're going to go in the other direction. <laughs> and people say, well, what happened to the previous one? Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> we're going to go this way now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that is a challenge that people need to, 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 grow, to, to come to, to, to grip with. Um, that is a challenge. Mistakes, I think we were naive in technology. We were actually new to technology. Um, we thought that creating something, something completely new was the way to create something great. Mm. So employment worked completely one way, recruitment specifically, and we say we're going to do it completely the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> and if we, if we are right, because we, we, we are very smart and we think it's going to work, uh, everybody's going to move across. Yeah. What would happen is that people really liked it, but no company will move across, not even if you begged them. <laughs> and so that was a mistake. So what I learned there is... What we missed was the ingrained behaviors. We would have been better off rather than creating completely opposite. We would have been better off creating exactly the same thing that works today Mm. with additional features that would take people to those new behaviors. So everybody's familiar with Uber. I think what Uber did, it didn't go and create a taxi company. It didn't really um, try to change the way people go from A to B. Uber went out there and said, what frustration do you have mostly? Well, I don't know who's going to come, come and pick me up when. The cars are always dirty and are full of stickers and the person is behind the screen and looks really scary. And three, when I need to get out in a rush, I need to pay with credit card and it becomes very awkward. And so they didn't do many things many thing very complicated from then. They said, let's get a clean car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's make sure, you know, the, uh, I know through the app who's coming, pick me up and when. Mm-hmm. And make sure everything is prepaid with credit card and trust the system a lot. And Uber didn't go straight away and say, let's do, Uber always wants to do ride sharing, right? That's mm-hmm. what they called. I never shared a ride with anybody on Uber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just had a driver that took me from A to B. Yeah. But with UberX, they are going towards ride sharing. They will. Yeah. They're already Uber pool now. But they didn't start with Uber X either. They would say, oh, think that, you know, a stranger is going to drive you. Yeah. No, they went to an existing asset 
As I was saying before, take something that exists, it's got latent capacity. Black cars, people like black cars. They're stopped most of the time because mm-hmm. they cost a lot yeah. and they don't have enough customers. So why don't we start with those? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people who want them. I'll put them at a cheaper price and I'll give them the... And then when that worked, they say, why wouldn't we get other people to use their own cars? Mm-hmm. At the, so disruption, that's a mistake we did. Yeah. We wanted to disrupt rather than significantly improve what's there. Mm-hmm. And so part of the difficult work for Live Hire was moving back. I, I see it as a pendulum. The industry was off kilt to the left, doing something in one way that didn't work. People applied to job, company to receive too many applicants. Most of them get disregarded and treated badly. Mm-hmm. And, 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 no, and everybody loses faith in the process. It takes a lot of time and money. On the other side, we started with this thing where company contacts exactly the person they want to hire yeah. and it's super efficient and costs much less money, take less time. Well, guess what? The, probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle of this pendulum. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take, so we worked very hard to rebuild everything and takes them down to, 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 to an even keel situation mm-hmm. in the middle. So, so we were too convinced that we were, we were right by doing the right thing and probably, yeah. So, and what we misunderstood was the behaviors. Behaviors is, how does a recruiter work? <laughs> mm-hmm. The behaviors are ingrained, not just in their heads, are ingrained in the systems they yeah. currently use, the policies they currently written, the boss's expectations, everything. Yeah, so that was a mistake. And so we, we spent, Four years trying to fix it. <laughs> I, love, I love that too because, like I said, if you can, if you break down the steps, all of a sudden you go, okay, I see, I see what's happening there, and you can begin to start to change the methods mm. to adapt or to, to to. You're not trying to break the whole chain of patterns mm. and behaviors. You can start to just bend them and twist them and start mm. to just nudge them and towards that right direction, like you said, and mm. then you can start to take them on the journey once you've started to get the flex in there and start to break it in there. So. No, I think that's great. And probably a lot of the thing, too, I, that I love and I hate about technology is it has limitless capabilities. And I think, and while I'll never, everybody, I'll never ever tell anybody to not dream for the future, sometimes sometimes I think the world isn't quite there and there are too many yeah. steps ahead and there is that needs to be something in between. We can't all just yeah. jump in rockets tomorrow or jump in a hovercraft tomorrow. I'm sure eventually we will in the same way we yeah. sleep in strangers' houses now with Airbnb yeah. or hop in a stranger's car, but something has to sort of come between that. So, But someone has to have the vision, I said it before, that's almost infinite, mm. that you can never quite never reach. Quite but that doesn't mean you've got to build that because yeah. actually it's quite infinite. Yeah. You're going to build something that works tomorrow yeah. that you can launch tomorrow, something that actually you have the tools to launch one, otherwise you're going to try, you need to try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to create the whole thing because otherwise it's going to take you too long or you need too many assets mm-hmm. or you need too many behavioral changes. Mm-hmm. So you're going to start removing all those needs and do something that is, in my view, incrementally better in the direction you want to go. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Can agree yeah. with you more. I would do things, yeah, that way next time. Yeah. So anybody listening, there's a bit of advice from the man himself. So no, that's excellent. Gigi, I've, I've loved this chat. Um, and 
like I said, pulling all the different threads together and talking about the engineering background and the consulting and seeing the vision and creating life higher to, to where it is now. But I suppose we've kind of touched on a little bit, but what is next for, for yourself? What is sort of that future look like? Are you trying to go back to that original, drag recruitment back to that original division or where, where is sort of that, that future for yourself? I don't like the word disruption mm-hmm. for the exact reason I said. Disruption is, uh, is an incremental change that exponentially uh, unfolds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you start with the idea of disruption, you're going to start the idea of change and improvement. Where our vision is, uh, from what I said before, to create a, you know, um, an open, transparent, and you know, a more fair marketplace. Our vision has continued to evolve into um, empower the flow of the world's talent to create a more agile, open, um, and awesome working world where people can leave the career they love, mm. really. So our purpose is to help people. And we believe that employment is the largest industry in the world. Yeah. And we're going to do that one company at a time. Mm-hmm. That is one of the key here. You can't do everything at once. You're going to create this kind of exponential flow. And so we, that's what we've been doing over the last three years. We're launching our core product, which does what we say, empowers the flow of talent into each company one at a time. Mm. And our job is to convince each company that by doing things in a different way and empowering people to have a better experience and better chances to get that job opportunity, we will change slowly the world of employment. So what's the future for me is that if you just take the US, the cost of recruitment is about $400 billion a year. So about $4,000 US a job. Yeah, wow. Mostly it's hidden. Yeah. And probably is about $4 billion or a bit more now spent in technology for recruitment. Mm. So I don't know any other industry that is that big, mm. that people need that much. That's got so much money thrown at it in terms of salaries, and they spend so little in technology. Yeah. So, for the lack of a better word, that industry is not being empowered or disrupted by technology. So, there is a rising tide in, in my view, in capital and in research and tools to actually uh, go into recruitment space. And actually, it's not surprised that Facebook is moving to recruitment. Mm. Google has yeah. now moved into recruitment. Um, Salesforce is into recruitment. So because they're all realizing there's a big, big industry. The question is, as all these mammoths come in, <laughs> what is life hard doing better than them yeah. that we will lead the way in a way? And my view is that what we can do better is continuously building out our software to very specifically to give a better return on investment to our clients. Mm-hmm. If I can't help the clients, I can't help the people. If I can't help, if I need to help the clients, I need to make sure that for the software they use, they get more with less. So all of a sudden, you can, they will refer you to all the other clients. Mm -hmm. Just like Atlassian is doing or Slack are doing. These are fantastic productivity achieving tools. They're worth six, 10, 12 billion dollars now, both of those companies. They are fantastic, and all they're doing, they're making teams more productive at what they need to do. And LiveR is the same. We want to make teams more productive in the recruitment space. Sometimes it involves new technology, involves new design, involves new research, involves new 
use cases with new clients, new, new geographies, new languages, new behaviors, new teams. The world is changing around them. So it's continuously adapting the software to more use cases. And in doing that, maintaining completely true what our vision is and what we're trying to achieve, which is basically empower the flow of the world talent and letting people live the career they love, which means the candidate experience in looking for a job, which is today appalling <laughs> around the world, yeah. that can be better, much better. Mm. And I believe that the, that the world itself would get much more out of the, human, the global human capital mm. if everybody's empowered to live the career they love and people are not left behind as they are or they don't find it so difficult or there's so much friction and so on. And um, we run our own research, for example. We run a, every two weeks a survey poll on more, many thousands of people via SMS. Two data points, less than 1% of the people are happy or somewhat happy with the job experience of the last job application they did. Less than 1%. Yeah, that doesn't surprise I mean, me at all. That is the Uber scenario. Like, all the cars are dirty. Yeah. Like, uh, Surprise me, it's even <laughs> that much. Surprise me, not even lower. Yeah, it's... Less than 1%. I mean, yeah. there's going to be... And so, when people, even internally, this is difficult, though, because they say, well, we want to make it better. Yeah. We want to make it much better. Well, if you move from less than 1% to 5%, it's a 500% improvement. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's when someone argues, but you haven't made it better for 50% of the people. Well, guess what? We'll get there before yeah. we need to get 5%. And second data point, consumer and customers and, and candidates are becoming the same. The blur yeah. between private life and public life and work life are blurring. Today, we really believe but more than 50% of the people vow to not buy the company product again if they had a bad candidate experience yeah. with applying to a job. And this is not a small problem. If you take a big company in Australia, there is many, they get hundreds of thousands, millions of people looking at their career website. Sometimes they got more traffic to their career website than to their mm -hmm. shopping or online or consumer site. Yeah. All these are customers that you tell them, sorry, you're not good enough to work for us, but yeah. pl please take a home loan yeah. or please buy a phone connection. And you're like, you know what? 50% of the people say, 56 say, they vow not to buy the product again or to proactively turn it down. Mm -hmm. And actually 30% of them actually go to the point that we proactively ask their family yeah, and friends to discourage them, from to discourage them mm -hmm. which is, these are sensational statistics. Actually, one of the most innovative companies in the world did this study many years ago was Starbucks. <laughs> they go always to have a cafe on every corner, you know, and, and they realized that so many people wanted to work there and they were turning down so many people who then wouldn't buy coffees for them yeah. anymore. So they spending much more time giving them a good candidate experience. And so this research, this work, and taking one client at a time to believe that if they do things better, it will be better for them and for the software to make sure it reduces the cost to hire of a person, I think it's a bit like Amazon keeps getting cheaper. Yeah. Because that's the only way where you're going to win the overall game. Yeah. Not making it more expensive, <laughs> actually making it cheaper, but making it do a better job. Mm. So, so these, these, these mega trends, and look, our philosophy internal, 
I'm very clear with people is that we've been 100% successful at getting 1% of the way there. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's very hard because you're always at 1%. And in front of you, you've got always 99 <laughs> ways you can go. Yeah. And which one is the right one? You're going to try, you're going to fail, you're going to be more right than wrong, but, mm -hmm. you know, that is the difficult. Everything is a dilemma. There's no repetition. You're just going to get faster and faster at doing and trying and things. So this is difficult. And it's difficult for me. It's difficult to maintain calm. <laughs> so get a, state, get a team to stay. But it's difficult, but it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I very much pride myself at working at the intersection of HR and technology. Different industry, obviously, than what, uh, what you do here at Live Hire. But if I think of software, I think... And I'm excited by the future because of any, I think, software uh, vertical out there, the HR tech space, it has the impact to create the biggest human impact. Mm. It's not a CRM. It's not a finance. Mm. It's not an accounting software. Mm. It's not another social media platform, mm. which I don't think are particularly oh, healthy travel. for us. <laughs> it's, it's the ability to affect how we engage with at our jobs. And to me, that's the cornerstone of our very life. If you're not happy at your job... Yeah. You're, you're really stacking the deck against you. So if we can do those sorts of things where a lot of HR technology companies are doing like you're doing, the, the profound impact to society as a whole is just unbelievable. unbelievable. And starting from a less than 0.1%, yeah. it's, it's, uh, this, 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 the numbers don't surprise me, but the opportunity in mm. front of businesses, like you said, it's just it's immense. So, I mean, I think it's great what Absolutely. you're doing. Absolutely. It's always important to ask yourself why something is difficult, why wasn't it disrupted, and really, or five whys, like mm -hmm. engineers yep. do, like, why? Because it's difficult. Because finding the right person for a job is difficult. There are, I estimate, about 40 variables in, big variables mm. in hiring the right person. Yeah. Some are per and lots of them are soft, lots of them are random, yeah. <laughs> some are hard, but yeah. not many. And that's why that industry hasn't been truly innovated. Yeah. Completely hasn't. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we speak to lots of veteran or recruitment and said 40 years ago, per recruiter used to hire more people per month than they do today. Yeah, I believe that. So it actually is going backwards yeah. because the world has gone more complex. Yeah. So the world has gone much more complex, yeah. like the, the job types, the skill types, yeah. the age difference and things like that. So these variables are too many. So why is it difficult? The variables too many are very soft. So to fix this problem... Um, needs needs lots of new ways to do things. It will need artificial intelligence. It, yeah. it will need lots of behavioral psychology. It will need better candidate experience. It will need you know different behaviors to be created in the recruitment team and in, in the people. We need new education. So it is a complex problem, but whoever solves it, mm. or the many who will help solve it, like often is, I think, as you said. We'll, we'll have a good purpose and we'll do good to lots of people. Yeah, absolutely. So keeping it on time, it is a lovely Friday afternoon. And uh, at this point, we want to move on to our rapid Thank fire you. questions. Are you ready to go? Oh, wow. Okay, I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> That's all right. So as always, just a set of questions. It can, your answer can be long, it can be short. And if you need to stall for time, just let me know. I'm always happy to give you a moment to think about it. But with that being said, the first question is, is what book has most changed your life? And I'd love if you could place this as to where you read it and what context did it change everything? Where I read it? Yeah, so, so uh, uh, what book has most changed your life? And tell us where you read it and how did it change things for you? Okay, the best book I think I read was um, 
good to great and uh, <laughs> looking at uh, already with that first person hire me I think gave me that book and then the follow-through book and um, I like it made me think about things that were not obvious mm. because it was actually based on lots of research a company that lasted about 100 years yeah. and um, today's research says about you know um, the, the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company has shrunk from 65 years to 15 or 13 years within the last 50 years, which means that by now in 2025, 75% of the Fortune 500 are companies you don't even know who they are yeah. today. Yeah. So that rate of change, that book was evidence-based and made me think uh, differently uh, about things. One example was the, um, the power of the end rather than the or. Should I have a company that's innovative or should I have a company that does things very well? Mm-hmm. Well, you should do both. And Yeah, no, perfect. Um, who's been the greatest influence on your life growing up? Uh, could be somebody you didn't know or some other prominent figure. Certainly it's been probably my mother. Um, four kids, always working, um, um, keeping everything um, on track as well. Um, person, lots of passion, was helping lots of other people. And, um, and um, yeah, um, lots of character, very, very tenacious, and, um, um, and a person who is able to move on pretty quickly um, and maintaining a very uh, practical spirit together with, a, with in, 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 an insatiable appetite for, um, for the arts, for the logic, for the literature, the, the higher level um, brain capacities. Excellent. Um, what gives you a disproportionate return on investment of your time and energy? Yeah, well, the very good question is when I can find time to actually do the things I said I would do. <laughs> Getting back to the to-do list, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, rather than, than doing lots of other things I didn't plan to do. So when I find space to concentrate, I think you can do so, so, so much. Mm. And as I said before, they are so rare sometimes the only space to concentrate becomes the shower. <laughs> that, that small window of day where you know... There's no one that can interrupt yeah, you yeah. while I'm in the shower without being inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, fair enough. Um, what mantra or inspirational quote has most changed your life and why? And I'd love, again, if you could place this as to where you first heard it. Uh, look, there's so many good quotes from, from Einstein, and it's amazing, but I think, you know, that the solution needs to be simple, but not simpler mm. than it needs to be. And that is like classical E equal MC square. You know, it's simple. You know, there's three years of full studies and other 45 papers <laughs> before they never got published. Yeah. But that is simple, but not simpler than it needs to be. And really, really, really does apply to the technologies that really work today. Amazon is simple, but not simpler than it needs to be. Um, Facebook, Google, all those, they solve very co- complex problem in a simple way. What it means practically is that you need to explore very complex solutions, but then you need to spend m- even more time bringing them back to a simple outcome. Mm. That's what you're going to focus on. And people often get lost in their divergent and then convergent side. And the two classic examples is people that have too creative, not too creative, but creative and spend only time in the creative side and keep diverging. And then, and then, or you have people that are trying to converge too early without having found the right thing. Mm. But there is a rule of thumb that for, in my view, is a rule of, you know, 
one to three proportions. So if you've got diverged to one, you're going to spend three times as much converging. Mm. Finding agreement, for example, very, very hard. And so that's, you know, have that final solution needs to be simple but not simpler than it needs to be. And I heard it from a very good management consultant partner who, who was working at Bain Consulting, and, and he told me that. Mm. Beautiful. I love it. Um, if you could give a 20-minute TED Talk or some other speech on something you're not well known for, um, but very interested, passionate, or knowledgeable about, say, a hobby or some interest, what would it be and why? I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's not that many things I'm very knowledgeable. Um, there's certainly things I'm interested in. Um, but um, um, there, if there is something I like to learn, I like to learn so well that I could tell others, is um, how to create a team that can be equally creative and free and also effective in delivering and going high speed. Mm. Um, is this level of agility and quality and critical thinking and practicality um, and people feeling autonomous and empowered but also aligned and you know it is it is something that is a holy grail of mm. um, of innovation absolutely i think so um, it's something i'm i'm pursuing willing to learn and something that i don't know how to do yet <laughs> So if I could get there, yeah. I'll certainly try to share my wisdoms. Fair enough. There's always there's always time we'll do a round two, and uh, you know that'll be a, we'll, we'll be talking just about that. There's a whole whole podcast just in that. But uh, the one of the second to last question here is: I'd love if you could quickly tell us through your morning routine. I'm not a morning person. I'm a very <laughs> evening person. If I could go to bed at three a.m. every night, I would, um, and I can get a lot of things done. But um, I have a little baby. She wakes us up every morning. Every <laughs> yeah, early. Her schedule, yeah. <laughs> Always. Um, so it's not within your control. And then um, I love um, driving motorbikes and Vespas and do turns. So that, that really calms me mm. and really uh, get me concentrated on something physical and enjoyable. And so I, I ride to work every morning. And... Um, I'm at work every morning about 9 o'clock. I think I've done lots of the thinking. And um, since two weeks ago, I stopped looking at messages and emails before yeah. going into work. Yeah, that's critical. Try not to look at email first thing in the morning or any text messages because all of a sudden right there, that creative spark could just be snuffed out by just some, some small but annoying problem and that's it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's, uh, that's what this technology though are designed for. There's a great podcast around that about capturing that moment of high comfort in the morning mm -hmm. to either make you excited or stressed yeah. in order to capture your attention. Yeah. And when you, then you get diverted and then you get sucked in into something. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't suck you just in. It sucks away your comfort. Yeah. And that's where your creativity and calmness goes. That is, uh, that is something there's lots of studies now, but there's equally amount of people studying it to how to take that time away from you. Yeah. Because it's how you get people on platform yes. who monetize you for how much time you spend there. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a fight. This is something I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about. I think I might have mentioned it in the previous episode, but I'm reading a book called uh, Irresistible by Adam Adler. And he explores the same thing where it's a dichotomy because we need to be on our technology less. But yeah, there are 
billions of dollars and tens and hundreds of thousands of people out there whose sole job is to find a way to hack your psychology to make you more to get you to spend more time on your technology on your devices so this dichotomy of how to balance that is something I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, and, that's, and that's a real problem, yeah. not just because people stress and lack of sleep and things are, and um, you know, lack of comfort in themselves because of all those tools, but it, it is because puts helps everybody just to be a customer of technology yeah. and not a creator of it. Yeah. So the more you're just a user, you don't look yourself from outside, what could I create? Mm-hmm. There's an alternative. Um, if you're just a passive user of everything, you're never going to create something different. Yeah. And so those things really bend you into submission. Mm-hmm. So I've never been a Facebook user. And um, I never missed it. And it's a social experiment I'm doing on myself. <laughs> yeah. Because... I don't know what it is. I don't kind of miss it. Yeah. It's interesting. But I know yeah. if I was in, I would get sucked in a lot. Yeah. It'd be hard to, hard to switch to that point because you're already You can't really go back. But then I yeah. keep my, my brain a little bit free of information. And I notice there's the only one that goes to a party and asks someone, oh, how, how have you been? And say, oh, I just came back from Fiji. I was like, really? <laughs> it's like, you don't get to pretend to be like, oh, what? <laughs> and, like, and everybody else like, oh, yeah, I've seen the photos already. Like, like what do you do? Like, <laughs> when did you go? So that emotion and spontaneity, I just find it interesting um, that it got lost in other people. Yeah, yeah, uh, 100%. And I, I think, you know, this is a soapbox I could stand on all day, but coming back to what you said earlier too, but I think we've lost that ability to be bored. We've lost that ability to mm. not just sit there and go on board and not just pull out mm. your phone and mindlessly search. That ability to just sit there mm. and, and listen what pops up and become that creator of technology. And there's nothing truly new. I mean, technology is engineering the world in a way they couldn't do in the past. But these concepts or the concept of having friends that Facebook has or <laughs> yeah. the concept of searching for things yeah. or the concepts, uh, they always exist. And the concept here is the Latin used to call it osium which is the productive way of the mind to spend time doing nothing mm. is not really doing nothing. It's to, to, to cultivate your thoughts. Yeah. And I need to do more of that. Same, same. <laughs> Gigi, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've, this is such an honor to be able to sit in your offices here today and learn about your story and get all this wisdom from yourself. I suppose my last question for you is having, having heard your story and having heard about the journey you've been on to where you are today, if you could go back to to young Gigi and to give him one piece of advice or one, one bit of wisdom or somebody else listening to this who's on a similar journey or aspires to a similar journey, not to make it easier, not to make mm. the journey easier, not to maybe stop you from making the decisions and the, and the mistakes that you've gone, but something to, something to make the journey easier, something to make it a bit more bearable as it goes through, what would that be? I would try to find an ad- a suggestion as, is very valuable, um, which is not the, the lotto tickets of 2017. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's the numbers, yeah. <laughs> it is um, that you can, um, in this world, you truly can do whatever you want to do. It's not just the job. You can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And, and other people are there to help you. So, um, so just... 
just work very hard and you know and find your passion your mission and change it and try new things and rely on others when you whenever you can but but believe in yourself all along the way because the biggest wasted wastage in the world is people who don't believe in themselves yeah there's there's the biggest waste i believe i 100% agree absolutely i think that's why I'm so passionate about this podcast because I want yeah. to be able to find people like yourself who have gone down this journey to tell tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And too often I get frustrated when we listen to the Richard Branson and the Mark Zuckerbergs and it just seems like they're just nailing home runs like nobody's business. Yes. Um, but it, it's, it's the 1%. And it's good to get lucky like that. But for the 99% of us, or the, the actually the 99.9% yeah. of us, it's not always easy. It's not always perfect. It's not always this mm-hmm. super clear-cut home run out of the park. But it's it's doable. All of us is, I mean, I mean with all respect to all, everybody I've interviewed, yeah. there, there's lots of other people there who are smarter, more capable, have more money, mm-hmm. are yes. more talented. But it's just a matter of having the confidence in yourselves and... Mm-hmm. And taking the steps. Yeah, and look, the bigger the steps, the further you fall. So it doesn't get easier. I don't feel like I'm in an easier position now yeah. than five years ago. It's just smooth sailing here on India. No, <laughs> never. It's actually, um, it actually gets harder. Yeah. Um, that's why those people age very quickly, usually. They're very successful ones. <laughs> you're, still look, you're still looking good, Gigi. No worries. You got, you got a bit more to age there, my friend. No worries. But uh, just for everybody uh, listening, where can they reach out to you to stay uh, up to date about what you're doing? Obviously, not on Facebook, but do you have any other sort of any, anywhere else people can connect with you? Yes. Um, they can go on, my, on, our, on our website. There's, there's a link to, to my personal LinkedIn profile. Um, people can look for Anton Luigi Godzi on um, on LinkedIn, and I tend to respond to everybody. Um, and I always ha- happy to help everybody, get people to visit our office. And sometimes it's not me helping somebody; they can just meet some of our colleagues or some of our staff. Um, it is, um, yeah, it is an open world, and I think everybody should be reaching out if they got something of interest. Absolutely. I'll make sure I include all the links, uh, yeah. obviously, into Live Hire as well, too. Um, I'll personally test as well. I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting some of your staff as well, too. And you've got an absolutely lovely, passionate group of people amongst yeah. you. So I'm, I'm very excited, uh, very excited for the future and what holds. But again, Gigi, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. Thank you. Do you want to work for us? <laughs> when, uh, we'll negotiate salary. Here we go. Part of a million. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, Gigi. Thank you. Hi everyone, and thank you again for joining me for today's chat. Please make sure you jump on Facebook to quickly like and share this podcast episode. If you're not already following me, please take another quick minute to hit that like button so you can stay up to date with all new podcast episodes, exciting announcements, and other things going on. You can find me on Facebook at Project Y2, that's at Project Y and the number two. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn if you're there. Don't forget to share and rate this on wherever you find your podcast episodes, and I look forward to having you join me again for our next Y2 podcast.